one of my favorite quotes is by Frederick Bruckner, who he says that the place that God calls you is the place where your deep joy, your deep gladness, and the world's deep hunger meet. And it's a beautiful quotation. I think that everybody should be looking for that. And purpose is something that, like that could show up every day and every moment. Hey everyone, I am Michael Davidson, the host of this podcast. Two things are true. I love people and I love ideas. Let me tell you what Alder is. Alder is a community of wildly influential people who are committed to making the world better, freer and better for future generations. It's about living a legacy, not leaving one. You could really think of Alder as a force. We're bringing together some amazing minds and hearts and talent. So please tune in, listen up, get ready to start thinking, feeling, and take these ideas out into the world. This pod is gonna bring both together because both are the, the necessary conditions to have an impact and live a meaningful life. So get ready to nerd out with me. So our guest today is Lawrence Gray. He's an artist. He's a producer, a businessman. He's a, a smooth talker, but he's also very deep and very wise. I think he's the embodiment of the American dream. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to un unpack some of these things. But uh, Lawrence got a start in Hollywood as a studio executive. So he was working for all the biggies, you know, Fox, Searchlight, Universal, all those ones. Uh, but one thing that's really cool, a little fun fact, is Lawrence is the one who found the script for Juno, which is a personal favorite of mine. And he took big risks, launched his own production company as an entrepreneur called Gray Matter Productions. And with the mandate of being a real hands-on creative partner, I feel like he's always in the studio. He's always working with the talent. He's always working with the team. I don't know what he doesn't do. And so throughout his career, even though he's been everywhere and involved in so many things, he just creates he creates vehicles for powerful and inspiring ideas. He's had films about from Yes Day, Lights Out, Last Vegas, so many more. And today we're going to talk a little bit about his latest, his latest one coming out with Netflix called Pain Hustlers. He's worked historically with some legendary actors. Emily Blunt and Chris Evans are in Pain Hustlers. He's also worked with Meryl Streep, Jennifer Gardner, Robert De Niro, Morgan Freeman, you name it. And so he's also was born in Canada. And he's been, but he also is very thoughtful about American culture, society, politics, went to Georgetown Law, very erudite, educated person. So from Canada to DC to Hollywood, we're going to, we're going to get into it. So first, Lawrence, is there anything, anything about you? I want to get into a bit of the, the geeky side of you. What is it that draws you to storytelling? What is it that draws you to being a producer, why didn't you go do something in sort of like in, you know, the legal world like you were probably going to do? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for that extraordinary introduction. And I, I don't feel like much of a smooth talker after your intro, which is absolutely brilliant. Uh, and I'll do my best to live up to some of it. In terms of, uh, it's, a, it's a great question. So much of this stuff is subconscious and unconscious. And I uh, come from a very traditionally conservative family. I had gone to business school and law school and was working as a lawyer in New York. And my girlfriend was working for a big Hollywood studio. And we went to dinner one day with her and her boss, who was a big studio executive. And my girlfriend goes to the bathroom. And after this wonderful three hour dinner, this executive turns to me and says, you need to do this. You are meant to do this. I said, I, I don't even know what you're talking about. And she said, I said, I, I don't have any background in film. And she said, you know, everything about film, the way you talk about movies, the way you talk about story. And she said, I have the same degrees you have, the same business degree, the same law degree, 
you are meant to do this, come work for me. And I couldn't take that job because it would have met the end of my relationship with that girl. But she became my mentor. I went to work for another producer and very, very close. And in fact, in the way the circle of Hollywood, when she ended up, she ended up being the head of a studio. Her name was Ali Shermer, later Ali Brecker. When she uh, became uh, later head of a studio and lost her job, I helped her get the job to be head of another studio. So, uh, you know, always be nice to the to the little the little ones because they grow up into big ones. Uh, so, you know, I, I I think for me, the thing that always seems to drive me when I look at a new story is just the sort of deconstructive aspect of something, wanting to understand a world, wanting to understand how something works. I love origin stories. I love movies that get under the hood of a culture. I'll segue way early in this interview and say, that's what interested me in Pain Hustlers was not so much, I had been looking for an opioid story and nothing really felt that appealing to me. And I came across Evan Hughes' piece in the New York Times Magazine, and it wasn't an opioid story at all. It was this look inside the world of pharma, a world that I thought I knew and understood, and in a much broader way, a nexus between government and capitalism in our medical industry, also fascinating to me, especially as a Canadian who comes from a very different system. So these things, being able to look at a character who comes into the world, you know, as a stripper, as someone who doesn't have any direct experience, so she's really this lens of a novice into this world, and you get to see all of the insanity, the excess and the corruption, and, and by the way, all the good, all the greatness that comes from pharma. We shouldn't overlet something that, that's really important in the film, too. You know, we talk about the film does cover the dark side of pharma, but, you know, there are stories recently like the two scientists who just got awarded the Nobel Prize for their RNA research and... That's, the, you know, that's part of pharma, too, that we don't always look at. So to me, it just seemed like an incredibly fascinating world. And that tends to draw me to the very stories. If, somebody, if I produced Transformers, you would know where those robots came from, how they came about, how they operate, what's under the hood of each of them. Maybe be the least interesting Transformers movie ever made. But that's that's my lens into into the stories that I love. So what what is... um. You know, well, let's let's go with the the metaphor of going under the hood. I just I just have one one more question. I hope um, or I think about a bit more about how you show up to it, and then I want to migrate to the stories because I I love that you're you're really committed to the why. What is it that that producer? What is it that they spotted in you? And I don't I I am curious about you in particular, but I'm also curious about what is that thing that someone looks for and whether or not somebody's going to make a good producer. And, that, and, and, we, and we said there were going to be no gotcha questions. Sorry. What I do you know. think? Like, or let me say it differently. If you were talking to somebody and someone stood out, what are you looking for as an X factor now that you've, you've made it? I think there is, being a producer, there's so many different ways to be a great producer. Some people are great producers because they're really talented at being able to get the money to make a movie go. Some people are really great producers because they're great at tracking down rights to valuable intellectual property. And, you know, my, my thing, which, which I didn't really know at the time, but is that I have this sort of split soul. On the one hand, I do come from a corporate background. I did work at the studios. I do have a sort of innate understanding 
of the DNA of what someone's going to green light, why someone makes this movie. And really underneath that, kind of being a lover of movies, experientially why I would go to that movie. And I always approach things, never think about, oh, this is going to make a billion dollars for someone. I always go, why would I go? If I'm passionate about going, if I love this, I can get other people to be passionate about going to it as well. But I think probably maybe what she spotted and maybe what's evolved a little bit has just been the other part of my soul, which is I'm much more of an artist. It was the first thing you said, which is funny. I've never been introduced that way. It was really kind of staggering to hear that. But just the fact of I'm actually much more comfortable on the side of the table with actors and writers and directors and just talking about story and not really thinking about money, really just thinking about making great art and why I love doing it. And sometimes I get involved in projects that, and I just say to everyone, I, I would do this for free. And, and, and really, in, in a lot of ways, it's probably my litmus test for getting involved in any movie is, would I work on this for free? That's would, it. no matter how many hours this would be, how could it never feel like homework? That's awesome. I really, you know, in all my time with you, you, you really do feel, it always feels like you're part of something greater than yourself. And that, that stands out. And I, I don't, and I don't mean because it's glitzy and it's Hollywood and it's, it's movies. I, I, it does feel like you are, you're a, you're a steward of these ideas that you're trying to help get a, a, out into the world. And so let me just, let me get your thoughts on one, you tackle a lot of difficult issues both from the human experience and as, as an individual human experience and the so-called hero's journey, but you also really probe and ask questions about what's going on in society and culture. And we live in a time where we're, we don't really know what our culture is. And it, we just know that it feels very broken. It feels very nasty. It feels very shallow. And Pain Hustlers, the movie, covers that quite a bit with a specific industry. I want to go into the themes in Pain Hustlers specifically. But before that, what do you feel like is going on in the, in the country and in society right now? What do you feel like it needs? And then as, a, as sort of a related question to that, as, as someone in entertainment, and entertainment, the entertainment industry has so much influence over culture. And so I'm, I'm curious, do you feel like, does entertainment shape, the entertainment industry shape culture, or is it just a reflection of the culture? So... Is it a reflection or is it shaping it? And then, and, then they, and then before that, just what do you think is going on? What is, needs to be reflected or what stories need to be told? What do we need to be examining as far as the why? Well, you said something really telling when you, with your reference to uh, a shallowness in, in the culture. And what I think the world needs more than anything, and this you know, can happen in a lot of different ways, but is education. The world... There's too often that we are, we do a narrative that appeals to what uh, social media sets off our synapses to react to, to a narrative that reinforces our already held beliefs. And the world is much more complicated than the simplistic answers that, that we get. And I think between, I, I think we weren't ready for the power of social media. I think we have lived through all of, you know, human existence, prepared for, I don't know, some number, 20 pieces of big news a year. And now we get that every minute. And it's a lot, it's, it's a lot to take in. And I think our conscience as we grow, as culture progresses, 
we want to be better and better and we want to assimilate as much culture as we can and as much information and make things uh, make the world a better place. But sometimes we do that without enough information. And so I think a lot of the things in the world would be helpful for people to get the history, for people to really understand and also to just see it and feel it from somebody else's perspective that may not that may not be their own. So when I look at these stories, sometimes the perspective is the biggest thing. So like the Panama Papers story that became a film called The Laundromat, the most obvious way to make a movie like that would be all the president's men spotlight would be from the journalist's point of view. And maybe the first thing that the filmmaker Steven Soderbergh and I connected on was, no, let's tell this one from the victim's point of view. Because the first thing that we had both seen, we had a a home near Lake George. And that story I'd read about uh, this boat capsizing in Lake George and these retirees dying. And then they're receiving no insurance payment because it was all underwritten through this fraudulent Mossack Fonseca deal. And that just was like, really, really hit me home. I really got emotional about it. So why would I then go tell that story from the point of view of the journalist? Wouldn't it be much more interesting in that character became Meryl Streep, who embodied really the the entire film. And and what interested me so much on Pain Hustlers was, well, the, and this goes to your bigger question about how to impact culture, was how do you go and tell something that's messy and sometimes ugly and sometimes complicated, but important? And I, you know, think about like a television show like Mad Men, which when Matt Wiener talks about why what Mad Men was really about, he says, oh, it's obvious. It was about the rise of feminism in America. But he didn't tell it through Gloria Steinem and he didn't tell it through the women's liberation movement. He told it through sexually harassing advertising executives on, on, on Madison Avenue because five people would watch the first version and millions would watch the second. And it seemed really interesting to me if you go through the lens of these excessive sleazy pharma salesmen who are all out for the American dream have lost their way. What a great way to look at our medical system and to look at the problems within it because there's excess and there's debauchery and there's a very interesting subculture there to experience. One of the first things I saw in the film was a rap video of these pharma execs dressed in fentanyl costumes wrapping their crimes. I mean, wow, you couldn't you couldn't make that up. So, you know, that to me, you know, what always seems interesting is how can you go and find an interesting take, an interesting angle, a way no one's seen before, something that will be irreverent and subversive and original and distinct and hopefully entertaining, especially when you, the vitamins are really the really rich vitamins, right? You got to put the vitamins in the ice cream. And you th- think about compare, say, a film like 12 Years a Slave, which is a masterful film about the racial ex- uh, experience in America. And, but that film, I wonder how many people, even people who love that film, have seen that film multiple times and how big the impact in the culture of that film is versus something like Get Out. That is pure, that film had a seismic effect on the racial conversation in America. So I really, for me, I, I love being able to find a genre angle and a unique angle to tell these stories. I, I love that answer, and especially for pain hustlers and what it hits. You know, yes, it, it does cover the opioid crisis and people who exploit it, but let me give you my take and, and see 
if, if you agree or disagree, but to me, as I was reading it, it felt like there's the big villain is greed, manipulation, gaslighting, control. The victims were obviously those who were prescribed the medications when they should not be. And, and, the, and then the big villains were the big players pushing it, the big money pushing it. But it felt like a lot of the salespeople dancing around. Emily Blunt and Chris Evans do a, um, all the acting is incredible. But it, it felt to me like Emily Blunt's story, this is bold or maybe a stretch, but is like an American story right now is she kind of has to go through this process of finding her heart and, and thinking critically about what is going on. But you get kind of this irrational exuberance. Like you, you get all excited about the bells and whistles and you become an accessory to either a crime or just something really corrosive in the culture. And in this, it's, in this case, there's a number of crimes, but there's also greed and manipulation. And, and I loved your point about needing to be educated and needing to filter through information, needing to understand values, needing to make sense of what's going on. And if more people in this country could do that, the country would be better off. It would also act as an antidote or a check to these kind of noxious forces that go and exploit and manipulate people and then people end up dying. And so I felt almost, there were cringy moments with the sales reps and the way they approached it. But it, for me, in a way, I almost felt bad for them. I felt pity. Because it was, I was just thinking, God, man, to be so, you lose your soul chasing the dollar and the quick win and you stop paying attention to what's going on inside you or around you. Was that a dominant theme for you and the filmmaker, for the, the whole crew? Or was it a bit more like, let's expose the issues in this specific industry or sector? No, you know, we, it, it's such a great question. That really became an evolution in the development process where I think we started with a much more journalistic approach to the story and had a writer. So both Evan Hughes, the writer of the book, is a journalist and our sc uh, screenwriter, Wells Tower, is a former journalist. And both of them, between Evan's piece and Wells's writing, those facts of what happened in the world are so incredibly well observed and so exciting and so interesting that we just got into this nerd fest of all the corruption and the way the, the world operates. And then as we start, so, so many of the characters in the movie are really closely based on real people. But we didn't want to, for the lead character, we wanted to be telling a larger truth, a more universal truth about the experience of farmer reps. So Emily's character is really a composite character of many different farmer reps, which opened the door to much more artistic license. And then we started thinking, well, what would be interesting for this, for this character and what's common amongst these people? And there was this really interesting evolution from looking at films because like Oliver Stone's Wall Street is a really interesting touchstone for the movie. And then some people talk about Wolf of Wall Street and the big short as comps. But what's really different is all those movies are about a character who just wants to get rich, doesn't care about anything else. That is their goal and they're unapologetic about it. And they're really entertaining to watch because of their, their, their moral commitment or immoral commitment to that goal. But what's different about Emily in the film and lies on the film is it's much more us. It's much more people who say, well, I want my life to mean something. I want my life to count. I know that I may be born on the wrong side of the socioeconomic tracks, 
but I know I'm worth something. I know I could do something if I'm given the opportunity. And so you have this incredible character who can go into school when her daughter has, has committed some delinquency and can talk her out of that jam. And it's this person with this just like incredible effervescent sense of life and this incredible power who's completely powerless. And then she finds herself in pharma, which is, as you say, a pure, like pure marketplace, a pure uh, spot in our culture where if you can sell, if you can be charming, if you can find the right angle, you can, you can have the American dream. And so it's in a way the perfect match of, of character to a platform until she starts to discover that the corruption within it. So she's okay fibbing a little. She's okay with some of the access of this world, but is she's but she's she just can't even comprehend the depths of corruption that exists within that world. And as she gets deeper and deeper, and this was true of several of these farmer reps, at that point they just had to be whistleblowers. And so the film evolves from what is a sort of Bud Fox, Wolf of Walls, Overstone Wall Street story to much more of an Aaron Brockovich story in our second half as you know, it comes to life. What is, if it's just on this topic of the opioid crisis and where it's at in pharma in general, I know this is not your expertise, you're telling the story about it, but do you have a pulse on, is it, is it as crazy and salacious today as it was when this was written? As I understand it from reading the book and, and the movie, the, the story is about a small player in the grand scheme of things, which almost makes it a, even, even worse. It's even, you know, more tragic because it does go to show how out, on the out in the outposts, people were operating in, with such misbehavior. But at the same time, if they might have just had a lawyer in their office, they could have been doing a version of the same thing and still gotten by legally which means there would have been no change to how the business is run and how the culture dominates and then how people end up dying and getting taken advantage of. So do you feel like it's improved? In the, is there more accountability? Is there, is there more thoughtfulness? And not just from, yeah, the regulations and the laws are better. I mean, are the people acting in it, do they have a greater sense of responsibility about it? And do you think this movie is going to enforce any of those changes culturally well so so yeah the regulations and the laws are are better and yes i think opioids have become such a cultural touchstone that there's more of a sense of accountability i think within the world as it relates to this particular subject of bribing doctors and speaker programs <laughs> only moderately better oh. you know you can't serve booze at the events, but you can still bribe the doctors. But, but sadly, what's, what's really happened is the center of this area has really moved to the street. You know, a lot of the folks who got addicted to opioids during a time where the laws were lax and then things tightened up, moved to be able to get synthetic opioids on the street. And so we have a real crisis in the country that exists you know, on the periphery of the medical system. So it's a really, really complicated story. There are signs of good and changes for the good, but there's also some real, real challenges. And now, you know, I'm glad you brought up how it's gone to the street because you're crossing over in the border, fentanyl, you're seeing the deaths. At this point, it's, it's way beyond 
just the contained contained in doctors' offices. It's it's a complete spilled over, a tragic, very felt system that symptom of a culture that is broken down in that we don't have accountability, we don't have character, we're unclear about our incentives, and therefore we can't be accountable to the outcomes. And you're seeing this in a wide range of industries. You you even tease out how this is also happening in education. You know, you're buying access and status, but you're not really investing in, say, growth and development. Um, or you're buying a quick fix pill, but you're not getting healthy. And and this is a dangerous thing um, in our culture today, doing the, doing the hard work of growth. It's funny because somebody was giving me a little, they'd seen the movie recently and they said, you know, the movie's so real, but what a bullshit moment you had in the film where she's putting her skin, kid in the private school and the private school asked for double tuition. And I said, actually, that was based on a real experience of a real private school in L.A. that does that all the time. So, yes, that it, it, it exists across the board. That's the problem. It's, it, it's you know, make, making this all seem believable that it's not fiction is the biggest challenge. Well, and even even if, well, in that case, that incident actually did happen, but versions of that happen like crazy, you know, Varsity Blues, cut a big check to the big university, you get your access. And so there's 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 this whole thing. I I, I, would, I wish we had more time because I'd love to go down the road of, of, of distortion of capitalism, distortion of the American dream, you know, and I think it, these things are really sad because I think capitalism is a is a beautiful, necessary force that has lifted billions of people out of poverty. But it is like the American experiment and and democracy at large. It's only as good as the character of the people who are engaging in it. And so if the people are not educated and trying to grow and be good, well, then it, the 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 darker angels will prevail. I think it's very true. And, and, and I also think sometimes it's the the sort of Frankenstein of where government regulation meets capitalism that sometimes turns in to a greater monster. And, you know, the medical industry, this one in particular, you know, you have all these regulations that really restrict people's accesses, but then you have this massive, you know, exception that doctors are independent prescribers who can write whatever they want. So all of a sudden you funneled all of this behavior and incentive into, wait, if I just sell the doctor, I can get anything I want. I can get past every other closed door. So, you know, we, you have to look at these things too within the vacuum of how, the, the pragmatic vacuum of how it all comes together. I love that you went there and, and we could we could go into that in a, in a way because a, a lot of industries are getting really messed up. Um, because you don't have these forces that just naturally hold people accountable. And we don't have institutions like Alder, plug, that, that act as a centripetal force to drop the best of people together and help them go forth together. Well, so on that theme, I just have a couple more questions. One, what are some other stories out there? I don't mean specifically, because I know you have to keep the production schedule and these things tight, but just just tell me things that are on your heart. Uh, you're looking around the world and you're like... I. I wish there'd be a, a story about that. I wish there'd be a story about that. Just what's going on in that heart of yours? And I'm, again, I'm not asking about anything specific unless you want to share, but I just want to know what, what, are, what's call, what do you feel like is calling you? No, I love, I love that. It's such a great question, you know? So I have, you know, to do anything really well, you have to be all surrounded by great partners. And I'm very fortunate. I have this, we, we you know, the I is a we, and I'm surrounded by 
you know, between Patrick Wade and Cyrus Mojibi and Ben Everard and Lloyd Everard and Lawrence Cow, this group of people that asked this, you know, we, we will have these same conversations, the same questions, and someone might just call up and be like, are you seeing this thing in the news? And, or I have this friend who has this story. And it's just, what's great is a lot of companies are just like, where are the rights to the exorcist? And can we just sell that and knock that off? And, you know, it's great to have any piece of business that does that. And I'm certainly envious of the people that, that do that. And we do that from time to time. But what gets me going into the office every day is that question, is what's really, what's in our soul? What can we do here that is going to feel like I'm doing something for the world? I'm blending the things that my heart is focused on into in, into work. And I mean, there's a, so the writer of Pain Hustlers and I were just talking, you know, if you've seen this story in the news, I haven't gone too deep in it. So I just, I, it, it's very fresh, but the story, if anybody's following the story, the news in Israel about this attack on a kibbutz in Israel, where the kibbutz fought back against the Hamas terrorists. And it's this incredible human triumph and story. I'm sure there are lots of producers out there and, 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 and I'm glad they are on this one to be chasing it down because these are real stories in the world that are just absolutely amazing. They're happening in front of our eyes. And normally we think of these things to have anything happen like this. You, we have we go back to the Holocaust. We go back to World War II. We go back to Vietnam. We go back to the earlier days to the Civil War. This stuff's happening right now, uh, last week. And it's amazing to see some of that stuff. So there, there's always stories like that that, that, that excite us. You know, our company has been working, I think, our very first project. So this has been maybe the most amount of time we've ever spent on anything. I always joke with Ben that if you if you monetized it, I would probably have been better off working at McDonald's for the last <laughs> eight years than when the movie gets made. But, we, you know, we love and grew up with the life of Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee was this incredibly inspirational figure to me as a child. I was a kid that was really into martial arts and got into a lot of trouble some fights and read those books that were really inspirational to me. And his philosophy was like the first philosophy I'd ever read at, at whatever it was, seven years old. And uh, we have this opportunity now to tell a movie through the lens of uh, Bruce Lee's philosophy. So it's something we're really passionate about. We have the amazing partners with Ang Lee and Sony 3000 and uh, Shannon Lee, the daughter of Bruce Lee and Janet Yang, who's president of the Academy. And so we have this amazing, amazing, intelligent group of thoughtful people. And, and hopefully it's, a, it's an ambitious film, but that's hopefully one that can finally be brought to fruition. And, and you know, it seems like just fun, frivolous family entertainment. But we made this movie yesterday, a few years ago, that really came from the experience of us being disconnected with our kids. And it is, yeah. And, and you know, we're, it's a funny thing, but I, I can't think of how many times, like, my son and I watch The Simpsons together. That's become this new ritual that we that we do. And the first thing he looks at when we start watching is he looks over and he's like, Dad, have you put your phone away? And how important that is to all of us. And so I'm really hope, hoping we can make the sequel to Yesterday because I think movies about reengaging with your kids, it's something that's really, really important to keep top of mind, even if it is just uh, uh, you know, more commercial forward and more entertainment forward. So yeah, we've got, and we, we, we've got a few things gestating on the deck and I could tell you, I could tell you about one more if you're, yes, please do it. 
Yes. So, so I just picked up some rights to this story from Boston Magazine that's kind of a mind-blowing story about this police officer in Braintree, Massachusetts. And Braintree, so sort of analogous a little bit to the opioid industry. So Braintree used to be this sleepy town of about 38, 39,000 people. And all of a sudden now with South Shore Boston becoming more gentrified and the, the internet and drug traffic happening between Brockton and Boston, Braintree's become a little bit more, experienced a little bit more crime and more drug trade. And it's the story of this police officer, this amazing guy, Bill Cushing, who is just, I mean, this guy's like an alder member in his soul. He is this guy who's just wants to be the best and is so disciplined and so determined. And he's a police officer in Braintree because his dad's a police officer, but he doesn't feel he's doing enough. And he gets this opportunity to join the more elite unit, which is the canine unit in, in Braintree. Oh. And he is kind of a little reluctant, you know, and he sees, but then he sees these incredible Malinois dogs and he's like, okay, I'm all in. And then the guy that matches officer to dog was actually, this one's for you. This tiny mutt named Kit that they open up the cage, the dog tears the whole room a new asshole. Every Malinois canine is terrified, scared shitless of this dog. And he's like, this, this is what you think of me? And they're like, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you're this wild at heart soul that wants to be the best. So does this dog. And he goes through this, this sort of training, this ritual with this dog where you put each other's lives in each other's hands. The dog only eats from your hand. You go through this experience and it's really brutal. This dog is, you know, anyone gets within 10 feet of the, of Bill Cushing, they're leaving blood. I mean, this, this is, this dog is ferocious and this guy is ferocious and they go through this experience and then they go back for the evaluation and they say, you don't understand. This isn't a good match. This is like the one in a billion match that we look for, have always looked for. And then all of a sudden these two become this amazing crime fighting team where they're not only solving crimes in Braintree, they're called from all over the state. And this guy, Bill Cushing, I mean, this, to really understand this guy, he's like, I'm going to be the first guy who's going to be able to keep up with a Malin. I'm going to train so hard. And so these guys just become, it's an incredible story. And the dog ends up, the, the one of the amazing parts of the story is the friendship between them, the walls that come up around them, protecting this, this relationship, and how this dog ends up saving his life in the shootout, and the dog actually ends up dying, saving his life. And it's top of mind because today in Braintree, Massachusetts, the dog had just won the posthumous Congressional Medal of Freedom, and oh, they erected a statue, a statue to this dog kit in front of City Hall. It's an amazing, amazing story. So there's, you know, some stuff like that that's still signs of hope and heroism and valor in the world that, that keep us coming back. You know, at, at those three, those stories, you know, everything from the Bruce Lee to yesterday, I really am getting the themes of the why. You got Bruce Lee, the sort of sense of closeness to your interior life, self-discipline, equanimity, and but also an ability to be a force as and when needed. But first, you have the fundamentals in place to know how to be a power for good, Bruce Lee. And then you have Yes Day at a time when people don't spend nearly enough time with their families and connecting with one another. I think that's why you see a lot of angry boys out in the 
in the world today and and you don't see our politics i think is broken because our our family connections are as well but then lastly one of the things i think we try we don't say it overtly enough but with alder the story with the, this last movie uh, one of my favorite quotes is by frederick bruckner who he says that the place that god calls you uh, to is the place where your deep joy your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet and it's a beautiful quotation. I think that everybody should be looking for that. And purpose is something that like that could show up every day and every moment. If I could just, I'm going to close with the two things. One, just a little bit about your reflections on Alder. I love that. I mean, I'll, let me sort of give a quick context on how I think about our theory of change. On the one hand, we have this sort of centripetal force of drawing in wildly talented people who are not just you know wealthy and influential and accomplished and all those things but they're very purposeful they want to be better they want to make those around themselves better they want and then that aggregates then to the centrifugal force of a network effect of going out and solving big problems changing culture changing the lives around them and i i love it's it's such a beautiful story how you guys have all met you know your other producers you got you know cyrus is and Patrick are in Bakersfield as some unlikely fellows and Ben and how you guys are, you're just some good citizens with big hearts and, and deep minds and now creating beautiful art that goes and uplifts people. I just, I love that so much. It's, it's I cool. mean, it's incredible. There, there's such a, I, I wouldn't even attempt to a answer a question that you could answer better than I, but there's, there's such a clear identity and a character to an older member and you can you can see it, you can feel it. There's a look in their eye. There's an intensity. There's a passion. There's a civic consciousness, and and it's amazing that yeah, like my partners and I on paper have virtually nothing in common with each other. We're from completely different parts of the world. We're different ethnicities. We're different ages. We, we come from totally different schools and backgrounds, and yet you know, Cyrus called me up a couple of days ago to be talking about some of the events of the world. And instantly we're like, I just love your philosophy. It's like the same as mine. And we just, and it was like, he could have been my brother, you know, growing up in the same house. And I, I do feel even shades of that with virtually everybody I meet through Alder. You know, my, I, my son just started a new school. There are some, and I've never been at school with Alder members before. Now at, at this school, there are some, and it's like- oh. Amazing. Great. Yeah, yeah, no, it's incredible. And 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 so th th there is something to the mission of gray matter that is has an enormous amount of of overlap with with Alder and what we're doing. And at the same time, I think Alder is also has a spirit of positivity and humanity and fun and excitement. It's not it's not homework. It's not that the kind of organization that you don't look forward to a board meeting. You don't look forward to an event. You're like gleeful to go and hang with people and you want to bring your A game to, uh, to an Alder event too when, when there's an important point. I remember when we sat with Gavin Newsom and some of the questions we threw at Gavin Newsom that I'd still like to see him answer. It's just, it's amazing. So yeah, so no, I mean, Alder's been just such an, I'm so fortunate to have been touched by it and for it to, to brought the company together for sure. Well, and you also, I appreciate you because you helped me re reappreciate that, you know, one thing we do is try to help our members navigate the information overload and the fragmentation of information so they can be wiser, smarter, more informed. And being educated and being informed and being able to be effective with your knowledge is 
such an, a critical, it's a critical need throughout time. It's just more scarce today. Okay, so I just have a couple closing personal simple questions for you. Just one, what are you reading and learning about right now? Honestly, the last the last 10 days have been a pretty intense rabbit hole on the events happening in the Middle East. That has been pretty pretty all consuming and and between the release of Hayne Hustler's coming out next week and doing all the press and a, a writer strike ending with a shotgun that started unlike Every project I have, period, right now, go. And this happening in the world, it's been really hard. I've been, uh, you know, I've been reading prior to that, about two weeks ago, I was reading a book called Hidden Valley Road by Bob Kolker, which is a really interesting family. There's some that's considered to be the most mentally ill family in the history of America, a family through three generations of mental illness. And it's a true story of heroism of this woman Mimi of this mother and how she has kept her family together and saved some of her kids from from this mental ill from mental from schizophrenia and it's also at the same time so it's got this kind of narrative aspect but then there's this journalistic aspect that's also a look at mental health in America from the 1950s to the present day which is also really really eye-opening so that's been something that it's a very heavy read but brilliant. I think when it came out, it was Oprah's book of the year a few years ago. And so it's been yeah, that, that, that kind of sucked me in, but then I've been, I've been a little sidetracked of late. I thought that, well, I'm glad I asked, but cause that's a really good, that was a good recommendation. We took our, we took our kids to, we were on a road trip outside of Louisville, Kentucky and, and, and went to a so-called sanitarium and or torium, torium, whatever. And it just, it, it's wild, you know, talking to the kids about what that building meant. And now people go there to be haunted and entertained, but tragedy it happened there just because we didn't know how to treat each other well. And we were so wrong about that. And so it's, it's, it's important to zoom out and I think understand that history and understand how far you could, people could go and how important human dignity is. So I appreciate you bringing that one up. Another question, what, is, what are three qualities or virtues that you think make a good leader in general or citizen? I mean, I, I would say, boy, wow, these are great questions. I guess I would say, you know, the first one being, how can you learn from the people around you? And you can, one person can only accomplish the reach of their two arms. And it's never enough as a true leader. And so how can you really listen and delegate and take in the values and the skills and the passions of the people around you, I think is a really, really important part in leadership. I would say compassion and being able to see, you know, the, probably the greatest superpower and one that I work on, you know, all the time. I, I, it, it's a muscle. I'm, it's, it's like the abs of my leadership. That I, it's the hardest thing to work on and always the weakest is to be able to, in any situation, completely sit in the shoes of the person you're dealing with on the other side of it. No matter how difficult, erratic, mean, illogical you may think their behavior may be, can you understand their psychology? Can you really have enough empathy and be able to use enough sense of self to be able to do that? And I think that's a really, a really challenging one to do. And then you know, the, the third one is just is really old school, you know, hasn't changed in a billion years, which is just can you 
you know, can you outwork everyone else? At the end of the day, there's only so much smarter you can be than your colleagues. Einstein said two hours a day and you can be an expert on any topic. And I, I truly believe that to be true. And I've been waking up earlier and earlier. A friend of mine has had this new routine where he goes into the office at 4 a.m. and he works for two hours till six. Then he goes to the gym and then he goes into the office for nine o'clock. And that time that he spends between four and six in the morning is like six hours of productivity because no one's calling, no one's bugging, you know. And I think about the discipline it takes to do that every day. And so I've been waking up earlier and earlier and attempting to to emulate that and just and, and just work harder. And some of my work habits during the strike have faltered. I've become too good at golf. I need to to get back in, in into it all now. That I love your your you're, you're pulling in, and I think we've lost touch with this. Just this these, this timeless wisdom, just felt intimately and personally. Like I think in modern life, I, I don't know if it's social media or technology or whatever, but everybody's looking for answers on the great beyond, and they want big scale. And it's like, wait, you could make a difference with right here. You know, you got like your first one was just it's the Bible. Iron sharpens iron, and then. You know, or on the other end, uh, my daughter is quoting Theo Vaughn a lot, the comedian. And so she'd go, game, recognize gang, baby. <laughs> it's the same. It's all the same. And then my last question is, when you think of America at its best, what is it standing for? To me, to me America is the first and only country to be founded on on morality. It isn't a country founded on the idea of just a piece of land or convenience. It's founded on a moral principle, which is really the respect for individual rights of its citizens. And so to me, America at its best is when it protects the individual rights of every citizen in its country, in, in this country. And so we've had periods of that. We still, in some ways today, there are aspects of our society that's, that, that do it at its best. Some of it, much of it, We've lost, and I think when we lose it is when we are absolutely at our worst. And so to me, that, that it's, I, I guess I, I, the theme of old school today is really the theme <laughs> that it, there isn't some modern, cool new book with some new idea that I could tell you about redefining America. I think the founding principles of the country are the most important principles of the country. Lawrence, thank you so much. Thank you for doing all that you do. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for... Enter, entertaining us with a lot of purpose. I mean, you're, you had me thinking a lot as I was about a lot of different things. It wasn't just the, the opioid crisis and tragic sales practices and, and all of it. I mean, you really got me thinking about the meaning of life and compassion for people, also compassion for people who make mistakes and they're flawed and how they try to turn their lives around. So you, you, you packed a lot into that story. You guys all did. So thank you for doing that. And I hope, I hope it reaches far and wide with the, the healthcare and pharma industry in general, specifically, but also I think everybody's lives hopefully will be a little better and reflective after watching the movie. Oh, thank you for saying that. I'm, I'm really proud of the film. It opens October 27th on Netflix. I hope everyone will give it, give it a watch. I think it's an amazing film and I'm really honored and appreciative of you taking the time to interview me. This has been such a, I've been doing a lot of press recently and boy, like this has been the best workout in a gym. How is it to work with Emily Blunt? Isn't she beautiful? It was amazing to be talking about everything from the founding of our country to great leadership 
to to older uh, something that I value and 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 really love. So thank you, Michael. It was a really really enjoyable hang. You are awesome. Thank you so much, Lawrence. I'll talk to you later. All right, everyone. Well, thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope it got you thinking. I hope it got you feeling. And I hope it stirred you to a bit of action. And if it did, please like, subscribe, share it with others, go talk to others. And of course, if it stirred you to something big, go do it and go bring people with you. We hope to be part of your journey starting right here. Thank you so much. Have a good day.